Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series, Innovations in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias, or ADRD, Caregiver Support Programs, Building and Leveraging Support Systems. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on September 19, 2022. In this podcast, Dr. Deborah Cherry, Ph.D., a clinical psychologist and the Executive Vice President of Alzheimer's Los Angeles, discusses supporting caregivers of people living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, or ADRD, who are also duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. Thank you, and it is a pleasure to be with all of you here today. Much of the material I'm going to describe in this presentation derives from efforts to improve care for people with dementia in California's program for duly eligible adults. It's called CalMediConnect. We're at an inflection point in our state as this program comes to a close and the state rolls out its new Medicaid waiver program, CalAIM. But the state continues to be a leader in quality dementia care by taking promising practices and lessons learned in the DUALS demonstration and integrating these into the new CalAIM program through policies and guidance documents. We appreciate the commitment of CMS's Office for Medicare and Medicaid Coordination to educate this community of providers about meeting the unique needs of diverse families who struggle with dementia. Though I want to thank the funders of the work, but in particular I want to make note of the ongoing support for the, of the Administration for Community Living and the Gilbert Foundation. I also have to point out that the views I express do not necessarily represent funders' policies. It's really important to make a case for improving dementia care if you're going to want to improve care within your system. And some of the points we make as we create this business case in a simplistic way is that rates of dementia are increasing in the United States and around the world yet it's still not being well-managed. There's a high cost of caring for this population, and if you look at the graph, you see that people with moderate to severe cognitive impairment cost Medicare an estimated three times more than other Medicare beneficiaries, driven primarily by hospitalizations. They cost Medicaid an estimated 23 times more than other Medicaid, Medicare beneficiaries, and this is driven by nursing home use. Yet, despite their high cost, they, they face many quality challenges. Only about a half of people with Alzheimer's disease get a formal diagnosis, and of those that do, only a, quarter, a half of them get it in their medical records. So if you hear that an, a health plan has 5% um, of the population age 65 and older with that have been diagnosed with dementia, you can assume that a large undiagnosed population exists within that health plan. Stigma around the disease further complicates the picture, with physicians and other healthcare providers often feeling that they can't do enough for the impacted person. And as a result, we find that only about 45% of people who get a diagnosis are told of that diagnosis. This population often has two to eight other chronic conditions, which means that care is complex, they are vulnerable, and we've especially seen their vulnerability during this, um, by, as shown by their high death rates 
during the current pandemic. Improving dementia detection and care is definitely an equity issue. Prevalence rates among the duly eligible are higher than in the general population. Recently released information on this population shows that about 20% of the population aged 65 and older, of the duly eligible population 65 and older, are living with some form of cognitive impairment. And the numbers may be even higher because of non-reporting and non-detection. Whereas in the regular, the, the general population 65 and older, Alzheimer's Association says that prevalence is roughly 10.7%. When you compare older adults who are white to those from other ethnic groups, you, see, you definitely see disparities. Individuals who are black or African American are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's disease or related dementia than whites, and they're more likely to be diagnosed later in the disease. While individuals who are Hispanic or Latino are about 1.5% more likely to have Alzheimer's disease or related disorder than whites, also diagnosed later in the disease, and their caregivers report that they can access fewer formal supports and thus face greater care demands. They also experience higher rates of depression. These are startling statistics that need to be attended to. There are barriers to accessing culturally appropriate care in this population. There are cultural beliefs about dementia and the role of the family. You probably well know, I see lots of care managers in this audience and social workers, that different cultures view the condition differently. In some, it is highly stigmatized and hidden. I often tell the story of a Chinese family that hid their mother's dementia even after she accidentally set fire to their home. They only sought help after she walked away from their home on the east side of Los Angeles County and was found 10 miles away at LAX airport wearing only her slippers and a robe. That's what drove them to ask for help. Other than that, no one would have known about her dementia. Obviously, income can really be a barrier to accessing services and supports, but it can be so simple. One Alzheimer's center in Los Angeles County found that family just never came for its follow-up appointments, and after deeper exploration, they realized, they realized that that family couldn't afford the transportation costs to get to the clinic. So they provided them with vouchers for a free ride share, and that's what improved attendance at follow-up appointments. And many people who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid have lower health literacy or lower English comprehension skills. And they need materials and explanations that present information understandably in written and in oral formats. We can't assume that everyone who comes for care is literate. I accompanied one low-income less educated African-American family to a local academic medical center on the day that the results of the 85-year-old mother's testing for dementia was to be discussed. The medical resident was charged with telling her of the diagnosis. He gave a technical description of the disease and then asked if they had any questions, and then he left. And the family nodded as though they understood everything, but actually they were completely bewildered. They weren't given any ideas about what to do next. Some kind of care navigation service is necessary for all families, especially these families. And this can be provided by trained social workers, nurses, or even by community health workers, if that's what resources allow you to provide. 
it's an important but neglected role. The lack of supportive services is, is generally the case for the families caring for a person with dementia and for a person living with dementia, but it's even more acute if you're seeking culturally and linguistically appropriate services. While health plans may not see it as their role to provide these services, they need to develop systems of referral to community-based organizations that can provide them if they're not willing to provide them. In an ideal world, they'd also pay for those services. And finally, I, most, I need to mention that for some communities, there is a history of discrimination and lack of trust in the healthcare system. Some cultural groups have had long histories of neglect and even abuse by the medical system. You think about widespread forced sterilization of minority women that happened in the 1960s or the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Health systems are not necessarily viewed as beneficent and we have to build trust. Now family caregivers, and whenever I say this, I talk about caregivers of choice. A family caregiver may be a dear friend, a partner, a neighbor. These family caregivers play an essential but often unrecognized role in healthcare. They can provide complex and intensive medical and nursing tasks and often have very little training to do it, from managing incontinence and preparing special diets management of pain, and even wound care. And they do this in addition to helping with activities of daily living like bathing and medical appointments, and managing finances. There's an excellent report published in 2019 by AARP, and if you want to read more about this, Home Alone Revisited was a great source of insight for me. If a family or friend caregiver is not seen as a care partner by the health system, there, what you can result is poor management of coexisting conditions like diabetes, hypertension, poor compliance with medical treatment, medication mismanagement. Often that may, may cause the system to label the person as non-compliant. It's like blaming the victim there. Can cause behavioral symptom mismanagement, and all of these together can lead to unnecessary hospital admissions, emergency room visits. The CARE Act has been adopted in more than half of the states, half of states nationwide. It requires hospitals to take certain steps to protect the well-being of cognitively impaired hospital patients, identify a caregiver, document that person in the chart, and provide them with care management and disease education and follow-up. You may want to check to see if the CARE Act has been adopted in your state. Sometimes it's adopted, but it takes education to get it implemented. So given that we have no medical treatments or cures for dementia at this point, the care is largely social and non-medical and often provided by families. Yet there continues to be minimum focus by healthcare professionals on these caregivers, though they provide the majority of care for people living with dementia. They're the backbone of our nation's long-term services and support system. They keep people at home, and out of hospitals, and out of nursing homes. And I need to note that supporting caregivers not only supports the individuals they care for, but could have an impact on the healthcare system's bottom line. 25% of family caregivers are estimated to be enrolled in the same health plan as their, as their loved one. Yet they continue not to be identified, assessed, or adequately supported, and they are not given care navigation or disease 
education services. Our system of care focuses more and more on social determinants of health, yet when it comes to dementia care, which is a critical, you know, a critical social determinant, is caregiver support. Caregiver support hasn't made it onto the social determinants of health priority list, and we certainly hope it will. Better care relies on support for that caregiver. You need to, in your system, build a way to identify the caregiver. And I have to note that the person who comes for medical visits is not necessarily the person responsible for the patient's care. That person may be at work or that person, primary caregiver, may not speak English. So we can't make assumptions. We have to ask, who makes sure that the person's medications are administered correctly? Who tends to the person's other needs? It can be more than one person, and they should be documented in the medical record. Then we want to assess the caregiver's level of distress and the types of support they need. There's some excellent tools for this on the website of the organizations mentioned on the slide. We want to provide appropriate support, and then, if appropriate, we want to engage the caregiver in development of a care plan and in implementation of that care plan. And so, again, it's not it's sufficient to just assess the caregiver. You have to provide assistance that matches their needs. If the caregiver is isolated, you might want to connect them to a support group. If they're depressed, they may need a referral for counseling. If they're physically frail, you may want to set up in-home care. If the caregiver is unable to drive to medical care with, with the person with the disease, you might want to arrange transportation. If they're unwilling to provide care, sometimes placement is a better option. And finally, if they're unable to understand the disease's symptoms, which is very common, they need to get access to disease education and support. One best practice from California's dual demonstration comes from the fact that it is required that everyone who entered the program have a health risk assessment, and that health risk assessment had one cognitive trigger question. It's called trigger question because it should initiate a care, several care processes if someone is noted to have cognitive impairment. In this case, it helps to detect cognitive impairment in a previously undetected patient and can activate a system for further screening, usually by what our system calls a dementia care specialist, nurse or social worker who has some training in dementia much of it provided by Alzheimer's LA in this program. Possibly it will trigger further a full diagnostic assessment and then documentation of the, of the of diagnosis in the medical record. So hopefully it will mean that the person with dementia gets appropriate care given their capabilities. That initial assessment also contains a trigger question to assess whether members rely upon a caregiver for their functional well-being, for cooking and bathing and so forth. And that trigger question should activate a system for caregiver identification, assessment, support, and engagement in the care team as appropriate. Another best practice that we hope will become a regular component of care for this population has variously been called care navigation, dementia care management, dementia care coordination. The role of the person who does this, this task be it social worker, nurse, or sometimes even a promotora or health or community health worker. Their role is to support the individual and the caregiver through disease education, caregiver training, 
resources for people who are at risk for walking away, provide psychosocial support, and maybe connect them to referrals like adult daycare and in-home respite. Some of these services are supported or covered by Medicaid and healthcare organizations should have systems in place to refer patients appropriately for those Medicaid-supported long-term services and support. Minimally, you would expect healthcare organizations to connect people to local community-based Alzheimer's organizations. At Alzheimer's LA, we have a helpline and a confidential referral program called Alz Direct Connect, and healthcare systems make referrals to us for many of the services on this list. In an ideal world, they would pay for them. These are some of the tools, toolkits, and training programs that you can access off of our website. They include sample screening questions for detection of a cognitive impairment, a sample training curriculum for dementia care managers, referral forms to help you make referrals to CBOs, validate dementia screening tools, a caregiver identification tool, and all the way down to best practice care plans. I'd like to highlight our caregiver tip sheets. These are plain language tip sheets available on common caregiving issues. They are English language on one side, and um, the other side can be in Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Tagalog. We're always translating into new languages. They were created when possible at roughly a sixth grade reading level. And with permission, we allow organizations outside of our region to co-brand these tip sheets with us. Some of the topics, there are 20 caregiver tip sheets currently available, and some of the topics you can see on this slide from anxiety and bathing and eating to hallucinations, keeping homes safe, and so forth. Again, we allow organizations to co-brand these tip sheets, and if you're interested, you can contact us with permission at alzla.org. You'll see that on a later slide as well. Community-based organizations also do education for caregivers. You can see here some of the ones that we avail make available online or in person. We offer them in English and Spanish, but other community-based organizations may give preference to other languages. And you can see here our telenovela, four-part series in Spanish and English that follows the family through the stages of dementia. Again, we're trying to create educational programming that is culturally appropriate, that is literacy appropriate. If people speak at the sixth, understand things at the sixth grade reading level, you're not going to provide them materials in, at college level. Each of our programs has a facilitator guide. For access to tools, toolkits, the trainings, the tip sheets, you can go to our website. You can write to us at permission ALZLA. I also want to point out that there is a recent website started, I guess, a couple of years now, Best Practice Caregiving, and that website will get you to evidence-supported interventions for your healthcare system to use for working with people with dementia or for working with their family caregivers. The, web, the, the, search, the database is searchable by language and other characteristics. These are some, some additional resources sources if you want to learn more about what we have done in California to improve healthcare. The most recent one at the Journal of American Geriatric Society emphasizes our advocacy model 
and can be helpful to others who are trying to do something similar. Thank you for attending today, and I certainly hope you found this presentation helpful. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website, resourcesforintegratedcare.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care or follow Resources for Integrated Care on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our recent products and technical assistance.